Rye Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have The Invisible Man, starring Claude Rains, Gloria Stewart, William Harrigan, and directed by James Whale. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. It's a new day, time for a brand new film review cask. This one we're building all around The Invisible Man, and we're calling this one Now You See Me. And we got a lot of fun surprises uh, along the way for this cask. Uh, returning to some old favorite directors yeah. uh, in lead up to the February, I believe, 28th release of The New Invisible Man by Universal. I think this is one where we're kind of got our eye on a little bit, wouldn't you say? Certainly. The price point on that film alone is very interesting. We'll get into this a little bit today and then a lot with that movie. Mm -hmm. Just to sort of set the stage, that movie was made for $9 million. Mm -hmm. It's an appropriate budget. Uh, There's not going to be a lot of set pieces because by the title, The Invisible Man, they don't have the invisible man in it a lot that would be the visible man exactly which would just be called drama (laughs) Mm -hmm. so it seems like even if it's not critically successful it's going to be successful we're getting ahead of ourselves exactly Uh, this movie was critically and financially successful Mm. yeah and i was surprised we just finished it in the in the room over there and you said you had never seen this before so first time through for first me. time yeah excellent so we're getting getting the first time raw watch from you so that that'll be pretty great but as we start out each episode why don't we start out with a beverage of of choice going with the high west uh double rye yes sir There we go. Yeah, this High West whiskey is pretty good. I, I believe years ago, man, I think I got you a, a type of High West uh, for your birthday. You did. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's nice. doesn't taste like great feet anymore. Thank God. Yeah, we're out of that. <laughs> we are out of that. Excellent. Excellent. So we start out each week with a, a flight question. Uh, we're going to do something a little different this week. We're actually going to cut to an interview uh, that we're going to going to be doing with Antonio Carlotta, who is actually uh, the, the niece of Carl Lemley Jr., which this is pretty pretty awesome because Carl Lemley Jr. is the founder of Universal Studios and kind of like the godfather of helping get these Universal monsters on the big screen. So you ready for it, Matt? I've been waiting with bated breath for this. I cannot wait to have this. All right, excellent. So let's cut right to it. Hello, today we are being joined by Antonio Carlotta, the niece of Carl Lemley Jr. We're very excited to have you on the show, so thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. So happy to have you on this week. I know you have a busy schedule and some insight that uh, everybody that listens to us and you, I'm sure, is is going to just relish in hearing, so thank you so much. Yeah, no, I'm excited to be here. Excellent. Well, you know, just kind of talking about, you know, how Invisible Man kind of ended up on our slate of films to review and, you know, kind of looking at Universal Studios in a nutshell and just looking at the legacy of Carl Lemley Jr. So could you kind of talk to us a little bit about the founding of Universal Studios? Yeah. So, I mean, Universal was started by Carl Lemley Sr. um, And Carl Lemley was a German immigrant, moved to the United States as a teenager, um, really just in search of the American dream. So he lived in New York and Chicago and Wisconsin. He worked at a pharmacy and in farming and at a clothing store. 
And he was 40 years old before he finally got into the film industry. Um, and it was really a gamble. He had, you know, a wife and two kids, but he saw the potential in film and thought that it was worth taking that chance. So he opened up a theater um, and that theater did so well that in a couple months he was able to open up another theater. Um, and from there he went into distribution of films, um, really so that he could control the quality of the films that he was getting the theater and then production so he could choose what kinds of movies he was getting. Um, but at the time, Thomas Edison had a monopoly over the film industry and a collection of companies that he called the trust. So he had patents on parts of the cameras and the projectors, and he would charge anybody who wanted to make or show films. And it was keeping the industry down. They had strict rules um, that the filmmakers were supposed to follow, and they were reluctant to take any chance on any sort of creativity. Hmm. Um, yeah, and then in addition to that, Thomas Edison was also a, a brutal dude. So if you found oh, out... Really? Wow. Yeah, so like if he found out that you were making or showing independent films, first he would drown you in lawsuits. Um, but then he would send out his goons to destroy your set, to destroy your theater. Um, it was it was really like mafia stuff. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so Carl went independent anyway. Uh, and he decided to name his company the Independent Motion Picture Company, which shortened to IMP, uh, which is sort of a play on Carl himself. He was only 5'2". And he really wanted to show Edison like that he was having a fun time giving him a tough time. Um, hmm. So Thomas Edison sued Carl 289 times. Carl <laughs> won every single one. Um, and then he joined Imp with a couple other companies to make Universal, which started in 1912 in Portland, New Jersey, and then moved to L.A. about where it is today in 1915. Awesome. That's a great story. And it's incredible. <laughs> yeah. Did the two of them ever square off in any way? I don't mean like um, De Palma, Costner, and De Niro, S and and uh, the Untouchables. In the Untouchables, but yeah. like, did they ever actually have some words that you know of? The two of them, mano a mano. Uh, so I believe that they, you know, did obviously in sort of in the suits and in dealings over the years. I don't know. Like, I know that there's stuff to like the biograph girl, Florence Lawrence, who was the first big movie star that Carl Lemley, uh, Carl Lemley essentially invented the movie star with big publicity stunts around this girl, Florence Lawrence. And he specifically and purposely stole her from one of uh, Thomas Edison's biggest companies. So like wow. they had a lot of back and forth like that, but later on to a certain extent, they were cordial, I guess you would say, because, uh, Carl Lemley had Thomas Edison appear at certain events at Universal. So they they kind of, despite all of the terrible things that happened, had a mutual respect for each other, I think, as well. Mm. Um, you know, and Edison would say, if I was Carl Lemley, I would have done exactly the same thing. It's a contrarian story in history, but if it's 289 to zero, like that's pretty much an ass kicking, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it ultimately became a Supreme Court case that, that Carl won. Wow. Um, it was like in violation of, and this is getting very technical, but the, it was like the Sherman antitrust act. Sure. And so he won because of that. Wow. Excellent. That's great. So if you wouldn't, um, I got a quick question for you here. And would you mind telling us about the, the birth of the universal monsters, 
maybe how Carl came to select those or what that process was, and then in particular, the, the Invisible Man? Yeah. Um, so Carl Memory had a son uh, who was called Junior, um, and he pretty much grew up in the movie business. And, and Carl had groomed him his whole life to take over for him and to continue his legacy. So for Junior's 21st birthday, he was gifted control of the studio, um, which a lot of people, you know, consider nepotism. And like, yes, it was. This doesn't compare to what I got on my 21st birthday. I can tell you that. That's a kind of a nice gift. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'm I'm pretty bitter about it. I got nothing close. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Um, But, you know, there, there was probably nobody more qualified in the world to be running a studio. Junior had grown up in the industry. Um, so it was a sort of a convergence of things I think that brought about the monster movies for starters, just that junior was young and he had a pretty good idea of what the audiences wanted, what he and his friends were going to want to see. Um, it, it wasn't really his father's idea and sometimes historians debate about this, but from, from everything that I know, it was not senior's idea to do the monster movies. I don't think it was his favorite idea to do them. Um, but junior really saw the potential. This is also, you know, as the Great Depression was starting. And um, monster movies were a really great way to escape from the real world. Sure, so yeah. the, yeah, the first big monster or the first big horror talkie that got made was Dracula, which I think was released, I, I'm trying to do the math here, like 90 years ago yesterday, basically. Wow. Um, yeah. And then Frankenstein and the Mummy and then The Invisible Man, which obviously they're sort of remaking now at least in title mm-hmm. um and the invisible man i would say is not he wasn't the most popular of the universal monsters but uh i don't know if you guys well i guess you have rewatched it since you'll be talking about it today like mm-hmm. it's a solid film definitely no question yeah and it was from what i've learned it was about like two years in the making a handful of directors and actors signed on and they dropped out um and it was finally james whale who signed on, he had done Frankenstein. Um, when he signed on, he was the one that pushed for Claude Rains, who at the time was this pretty much unknown theater actor, um, to be the Invisible Man, which I think had to do with like his accent and his voice and that he thought it would be, you know, really great for the film. Um, Claude Rains, actually, I was just reading, talked about before the Invisible Man, he had only even seen six movies his entire life. Wow, which, really? Yeah. It's like, I'm going <laughs> to go. You know, it, it oh. seems so foreign, but yeah. like, I, I guess it kind of makes sense for the time. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. There was only yeah. eight movies that were out at that time. So yeah, you've seen good, pretty, you know, six of eight's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah. And then, you know, when you watch the movies, like the special effects for the time were super state of the art mm-hmm. and like, kind of hold up by today's standards too yes yeah matt and i were trying to to think back of the films made around that time that were even thinking of attempting any type of optical effects to to that extent and this is definitely one of the one of the first kong maybe caligari caligari mm-hmm. a little bit but mm-hmm. this is miles beyond either of those yep yeah absolutely it's funny though that junior you we took you know the kind of the mantra in Hollywood is like 18 to 25 year old males. If you want to win the weekend. Right. And Mm -hmm. junior identified that long before it even was a financial idea to sort of monetize that demographic. And then to take something like 
Dracula, like classic literature and adapt it. It's just pure genius. And God bless him for having the insight and the guts to do that because Thomas Edison was doing the great train robbery. Yeah. I mean, Junior really was. And again, he's another figure that's sort of controversial because he made some of the greatest great films, but he also made some of the biggest, uh, like, I don't want to call it a flop. That's such a sort of pejorative word. But he also, you know, made movies that lost so much money. But, you know, when you think about it, like he he did have really great ideas for how to run Universal for a long time. It was just let's churn out film after film after film, you know, the more the better. And Junior was the one that was like, hey, what if we did fewer films, more money, but like, let's really focus on quality. Let's try to make these better, bigger films, you know, and he changed the way that movies were made. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you for sharing that. Now, kind of looking at uh, Carl Lemley uh, post-Universal, you know, correct me, was it around maybe 35 or 36 that he kind of moved away from, from the studio and what was life like after Universal Studios? Yeah, so um, Carl Lemley and, and Junior, they locked the studio in it was like 1936-37, um, and it was technically over the movie Showboat. Um, mm. So they, again, this was sort of Junior's uh, influence where they were making bigger films. Senior was always very um, frugal. He never took out loans. He, you know, was very specific with his money, but junior definitely was a bigger gambler when it came to films. Uh, and they started taking out loans and with the movie showboat, they just could not, the movie went over budget and it went over, um, time and they couldn't repay on time and they lost the studio, which is, yeah. And it's especially a tragedy because showboat ended up being their biggest film to date at that point. So, You know, it was a gamble that paid off, but they weren't able to see it through. Um, But Senior really pivoted again in a really great way. So it was around this time that Hitler was, you know, coming to power in Germany. And Carl, you know, being a German immigrant and still being really close to his hometown, uh, he could see the danger and he could see the effects of what was happening. So he actually dedicated all of his time to fighting against, you know, Hitler. And he sponsored... Uh, Jewish families to come to the United States. Uh, he set them up with homes and jobs at Universal. So there were a ton of jokes that were made back in the day um, that Universal was this nepotism studio. And I think even Ogden Nash wrote a poem about Carl Lemley saying, um, Uncle Carl Lemley has a very large family uh, because everyone that worked at Universal was friends and family and friends of friends and That's family terrific. of family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you know, it was, it was for this great cause. It was because he was bringing people over from Europe this way and, and saving their lives. That's incredible. Wow. So was Showboat the movie that followed The Bride? Was it Bride then right into Showboat? I think so, yeah. I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't tell you exactly the slate in order, but yeah. That's so crazy that you have The Bride, which I think at that point was Universal's most profitable monster film, and then you go into Showboat, which again, sets more records and then you lose the studio for a better cause. Mm-hmm. Let's be honest about it for a way better cause. Yeah. I mean, it like it worked out, I guess, you know, and, and it's not like Carl's life ended there. Um, but it's just, I, I think for the loan company, uh, I think they were called standard capital, you know, they saw an opportunity here. Well, it wasn't so much about, how is the movie going to do? Are you going to be able to pay us back? It was, 
wait, you mean we have an opportunity to take this super profitable studio? Awesome. We'll do it. And so they, you know, called in the loan and didn't give any, any leniency there. Excellent. Thank you. So my question for you is with the success that we hope comes from the new invisible man down the road, and this can just be personal, like your own thoughts on it, thoughts or hopes or ideas about what is the canceled dark world, dark universe saga. Where do you see that going? If you even see yeah. there's a necessity for it to go forward. So, I mean, I'm, I get so excited about anything hearing about the monsters coming back and this opportunity for a new generation to, you know, get to know them and love them the, the way that I have. Um, I think, and this is all my personal opinion. I don't, you know, come from Universal or anything like that. Uh, I think that Universal really rushed into trying to make this universe mm-hmm. instead of making really brilliant standalone films that meant something on their own. Um, the Mummy, with all due respect, was like such a garbage movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I am super optimistic. I love. I mean, I really like Bloomhouse films, and I think that they do great work. So mm-hmm. I'm optimistic about The Invisible Man. Um, that it's going to do well and hopefully set a precedent for, uh, I guess just hopefully put the idea in, in Universal's head that, oh, wow, if we make all of these individual really great movies, then maybe one day we can find a through line to tie them together. But it's so much better to, to get an audience there and to get an audience to care mm-hmm. and, and to go from there. Um, but I do know, you know, obviously in Orlando, they're, they're opening up the monster, you know, part of the park there. And, Again, like anything that will get people invested and excited about the monsters and, and to, you know, then maybe look back to the history in the original films, that's exciting to me in itself. So no chance a post credit scene with Tom Cruise showing up, huh? <laughs> God, I hope not. It's a joke, yeah, okay. <laughs> They'd have to pay him so much money to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, well, oh, we're just about wrapping up uh, this interview with Antonia. And if we want to let uh, our Rye Nation audience know a little bit more about you and you know all the legacy work you're doing for Carl Lemley. So can you kind of uh, tell everyone about your, your YouTube channel, Universally Me? Yeah, so I started Universally Me probably about five years ago. Um, and I, I think it started for a few reasons. I wouldn't say that I always had a sense when I was younger of who my family was or what they had done. Mm-hmm. Um, but as it you know became more clear and as I learned more about Carl Lemley, I was kind of blown away by this man that I was related to that did so many amazing things, that mm-hmm. took down Thomas Edison, that started Universal, that saved you know, more than 300 Jewish families, mm-hmm. but that somehow was still virtually unknown in the world. If you go to most people, they've never heard his name. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mom is also a genealogist. She collects universal mem- memorabilia. She has a lot of our old family stuff. So I just, I don't know. I love learning how much there was that history. So I started Universally Me as a way to continue that legacy, um, to get Carl Lemley's name and his work out there. And then as a way for me to explore my own history and my own roots as well. So I put out videos um, about every other week. I'm not great about keeping a perfect schedule. Um, but I talk about, you know, old films and actors and my relatives and I'll, you know, share pieces from my family's collection. And it's been so exciting for me to do. That's excellent. That's, that's awesome. That's, you know, you know, part of film preservation too. And, you know, 
kind of, you know, making others aware of, you know, all the past work that's been done. That's to me is kind of just a film buff, film fan. That's so important. So much of yeah, the story of Hollywood is the movie, but then the story about the movie too, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I've really been making peace with the fact that LA is, it is always changing and we're kind of a city of build it up, tear it down, put up something new. So the preservation aspect of it is really so important because you don't, you know, nothing really has permanence here. Mm -hmm. Well said. Well, excellent. Thank you very much for joining us today. You know, this is big for me and Matt because, you know, we grew up with the Universal Monster. So I've always known Carl Lemley's name just on the titles that, you know, he was so involved with uh, bringing these to the big screen. But you know, Matt and I are going to tackle Dracula, Frankenstein, and the Bride eventually one day. And, you know, if, if if the time's right, we'd love to have you back on. Yeah, I would absolutely love that. Thank you guys so much. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. Most people probably don't drink at uh, 10 o'clock in the morning, but this one's me and Jesse raising it up for you. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Take care. All right, you fools. You brought it on yourselves. Everything would have come right if you'd only left me alone. You've driven me near madness with your peering through the keyholes and dipping through the curtains. And now you'll suffer for it. You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? All right, I'll show you. There's a souvenir for you. And one for you. I'll show you who I am and what I am. <laughs> So The Invisible Man opens up with our main character, Griffin, played by our boy Claude Rains, which this is great to talk about because we've mentioned his name many times throughout this podcast going back to early last year. Kind of the every supporting actor role for the rest of his career. And here he is in his first American uh, lead role, 1933's The Invisible Man. And for the most part, he's pretty bandaged up and disguised for the in- or invisible for the entire film. But we kind of get him, you know, coming to the, this little inn. And one thing I've always liked about the character, the Invisible Man, and particular Universal's depiction of it, and I think that's something to talk about is Universal's depictions of what these monsters look like. Because when you really break down Mary Shelley's version of Frankenstein, it's very different. But when you say Frankenstein, how do you not think Boris Karloff's version of that? Right. So same thing here. I always think of those goggles and the bandages and that like elongated nose. And to me, that's that's the Invisible Man. What do you think of the look of the character? Iconic. We talked about that's another Halloween costume. That's another Halloween costume. Mm -hmm. We've seen a lot of iterations of that played out. But the bandages and the safety pins kind of around his um, bandage areas sort of keep it from falling off are just priceless. And then you put the robe on there, whether it's a smoking jacket or a robe, the ascot or scarf. It's a, such a strange look because it's not really functional clothing. Yeah. It's sort of lounge around the house clothing. Yeah, sure. It's not even laboratory clothing, which what you just said is where we start off in our story, him trying to fix this condition that has befallen him. But once he leaves that inn and gets out on the road, one thing that struck me in this regarding the look is how inadequate it's actually going to be. Cause mm-hmm. the movie's set in the winter. Yeah. 
I mean, it's just short of putting on his house slippers and a pipe. Like this is to get up and read the Sunday paper, not to go on some spree. But all that aside, it's a brilliant design by Universal. And they, even though there's a few different outfits, it mostly exists in sleepwear. Yeah. Which I love. Mm-hmm. And the glasses are creepy. He's the loungy, invisible man. Oh, yeah, especially the glasses that he gets later with, like, the, the side panels. What's that? I don't know. I don't even know where he'd get those. I, me either. Yeah, those are interesting. But a, a, a really great look. Something I had kind of forgotten about with this film, I forgot that James Well directed that, and he's kind of the architect of, of a lot of these films from Frankenstein and Bride and then this one. You mentioned this while we were watching it, and I thought it was very interesting. Was You said he sounds a lot like Colin Clive, uh, voice-wise, yeah. uh, Claude Rains. Of course, Universal. You know, Frankenstein, Dracula was a substantial hit when it came out, but Frankenstein was like a whole nother level. So Boris Karloff became kind of like the the golden boy there at Universal, and it, a, a bit of a rivalry of sorts between him and Bela Lugosi, and they actually sure. ended up in a lot of films together, where it'd be The Raven or The Black Cat, all those uh, Edgar Allan Poe ones. But uh, they wanted him for for this part. Um, the, you know, they had to settle. But Colin Clive was actually in consideration for this role, which is interesting. <laughs> you don't see Claude Rains' face. And so first time viewing for me, mm-hmm. much more familiar with Frankenstein or Bride. Mm-hmm. The pantameter. Yeah. The way when he shows up and we meet um, his <clears throat> assistant. Um, Kemp. Kemp. Mm-hmm. And he keeps yelling at him, sit down, sit down, sit down. Like that sounded like Colin Clive to me in Frankenstein, who says that line a lot as well. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's Claude Rains, but there's a couple times I really had to catch myself saying, "Man, I think that is sounds like him." Could be Colin Clive voiced over, which it's not. But yeah. boy, and so I was thinking about that during the the viewing. Mm-hmm. This is not Method because we're 40 years before Methods even uh, 30 years before Methods even really a, a an acting technique. Yeah. It's slightly British. Mm-hmm. Claude Rains is a little pretentious in that sort of British air about him. Yeah. And so is Colin Clive. Mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not sure why they got it to that because I don't know how James Whale directs that. It's a little shrill from time to time. And when they speak, the voice gets a little pitchy and mm-hmm. shrill. Mm-hmm. That's not direction. That's just the guy's voice. Yeah. So maybe it goes to typecasting, which is what you said. Mm-hmm. Turn down and we'll get the next best thing that we can find. Yeah. And there's this unknown. I do think this is Claude Rains' first film, yes? Like, first American film. I don't know if he had been doing anything overseas, but this is, like, his first foray in the States. So, yeah. And to Claude Rains' agent, if there was one, hey, we got a movie that you're mostly not going to be in. Are you interested? Yeah, and to put more 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 salt on the wound, too, He all his dialogue is, like, either pre- or post dub, so he wasn't mm-hmm. even really speaking. And in some scenes, he's even body-doubled by a man with a more prominent... Uh, nose so yeah <laughs> so it's, it's, it's not, even, not even a great like star starring role but it's something he's certainly remembered for uh uh for being in this in this early film so yeah i just wanted to kind of get your take on there because he shows up at this bar and it's i'm always very reminded of american world in london like oh yeah anytime you walk into like this foreign like pub and obviously there's something weird about you and everything just stops like they just like stare you down which would be such an uncomfortable experience if you're like a foreigner and you come in and you're like whoa like 
why the special treatment? I know I look weird, but that they're like very wary of this guy right from the get go. It's such a timeless setting, isn't it? The inn. Yes. You, you can put that in so many from video games to mute rock songs. Yeah. The inn just works as this wayward place full of nondescript clientele. Yeah. And the grifter or drifter, depending mm-hmm. how which way you want to go, shows up with no necessitate for backstory because it's starting right now. And like, mm-hmm. so we're isolated and for the purpose of this movie, he wants to be isolated so he can conduct his experiments. Mm-hmm. It's off the map. So it's hidden. There's just something it, the, I don't know a setting that the inn wouldn't work in. You know, who loved the inn was hammer whore, right? The hammer whore, like film, whether it's Dracula or whatever, Frankenstein, like there's always an inn. <laughs> And if they, then you get to the innkeeper and the innkeeper's daughter and it becomes wanton. Or in this one, you get like the innkeeper. The in, and the innkeeper's uh, waitress played by Una O'Connor, who... Two two role, two places she's really good. What are they? Yeah, Bride of Frankenstein and, and, and this. And she's really good at hysterical. <laughs> yes. She just screams. Yeah. But it's fun. Yeah. Yeah, she's yeah she's definitely very good at it. And they capture very well because I wonder because James Well, two years later, would do Bride. And he's like, I need more of that hysteria in this film. I need her. So, so the sequencing at Universal is Dracula, mm-hmm. Frankenstein, mm-hmm. and then this. So we're 30. No, mummy, and then this. Dracula, Frankenstein, Mummy, this. This yes. is 33. Dracula mm-hmm. and Frankenstein are 31. Mummy's 32. Mm-hmm. Man, talk about setting a standard that you and I should worship at the altar of. Those four films for you and me are monumental, not just universal, but mm-hmm. personally and then financially for them, yeah. And they laid the groundwork and especially, and then after Bride, which just kind of off the cuff, that's one of my favorite films oh, of yeah. all time. I think that made my top 10 uh, horror films of all time list. There's a bit of a dry spell in between there, you know, changing of management and 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 whatnot, but then once they got into the 40s, then you introduce a Wolfman and then everything else going forward. And then that's when they got really sequel crazy. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, Invisible. Family. Yeah, the Invisible, yeah, Agent, Invisible Woman, Invisible Man Returns, and the Invisible uh, Man's Revenge. So there's like more iterations of this, but uh, Claude Rains is nowhere to be found in the rest of them. Are you sure? You just can't see him. Yeah, probably. Yeah, <laughs> he's there in the uh, sidling in the background. <laughs> But uh, kind of right off the bat, um, they confront him, and, and you know he's like, he's like, "I'll write you fools, and I'll show you who I am." And I think one of the strengths of this film, you know, we I know we talk to about like it's not fair to say things don't age well because there are of their time. But uh, for 1933, Matt, I thought these effects of his invisibility and his lack thereof of of a body and walking in the clothes is actually pretty pretty great. I, I was trying to go back in my in my way back machine in my movie film vault in my head and try to think of a film around this time that was even attempting any optical effects, anything like this. Oh, what? it was either stop motion, you know, with the King Kong is it's kind like of Caligari, a, but no, not, not even nothing, nothing, like nothing this. close. I'm just trying to think of anything that had, it was either production special effect value. It's it was a, maybe miniatures, maybe something like Fritz Lang's uh, Metropolis. So you're doing miniatures and matte paintings, or you're doing stop motion type things like Lost yeah. World and yeah. King Kong. But no, this is like a visual effect. It's that holds up today. Mm-hmm. I think that when we're about to find out. Yeah, 
Yeah, and a lot of the the shtick in the early viewings of this had to have been how can we show this without showing, and then the effect of the environment around him. That smoking sequence, which we'll get to later with Kemp, mm -hmm. is really, really well done. Mm -hmm. um, and I also like that this is later in the film, but they address something that I thought was always a flaw in Invisible Man films, and that's after I eat for an hour, I need to be alone. Otherwise, you're going to see my guts. You can see the food. Yeah, yeah. And they addressed it. Um, again, first time for me, so I didn't know that. Kudos that, to James Whale and H.G. Wells for tackling that. And that, that bit about my feet going up and down the stairs, I hadn't thought about that. Mm -hmm. Every time I walk the stairs, yeah. I watch my feet go on the stairs. If mm -hmm. you can't see them, man, it might be Tumble City. Yeah. And they, I just, it's pretty smart in its awareness of what it means to not be seen. Yeah. Setting the rules for what it ah, means to be invisible. To that, Jesse. <laughs> to a rule Beautiful. Movie. Good job. Chemicals mixed together, that's all. And flesh and blood and bone just fade away. A little of this injected under the skin of the arm every day for a month. An invisible man can rule the world. Nobody will see him come, nobody will see him go. He can hear every secret. He can rob, break, and kill. <laughs> he's got a great laugh. like, And he just sounds insane the whole time because he's, he's really a man that's... He's done this invisibility formula, and it's really made him go off the rails. And he's trying to find a way back to sanity, but in the meantime, he's like, "We're going to go on a reign of terror type of a situation, too." But he he has a uh, some cohorts with him. Uh, one, uh, Mister um, Clarence, the Guardian Angel, who was kind of his co coworker, his co scientist pal, uh, who's doing this invisibility formula. We have Kemp and then also a fiance, uh, Flora, played by Gloria Stewart. We looked up her filmography while we were watching. So if you don't know Gloria Stewart, you know her. She was the old woman in Titanic, old Rose. And if you're a fan of the show Manimal. <laughs> Manimal. <laughs> Did you watch Manimal? A little bit. I never watched that. It, I never, I it never, was I never, not good. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it could have been good, but it wasn't. Okay, excellent. Uh, yeah, so she had an interesting period. She was like very active in the 30s and 40s, and then there's a huge gap between like 44 and like 1975, and then kind of stayed with it. But this here she is in one of her earliest film roles, uh, kind of playing uh, this you know love interest for, for Griffin, uh, Mr. Claude Rains. Now, this is interesting because this is a little bit of a deviation from the book being that, you know, Griffin didn't have like a, a lot of this in the book, this kind of like supporting kind of framework that he has in the film. But I think it's a nice touch and something I always kind of look for in the Universal films, whether it's, you know, Renfield. Yeah. Or like the, the supporting cast. Yeah. Renfield. Igor. Mm -hmm. I think um, these films are really good at, um, you know, putting that together. And then even Claude Rains later in The Wolfman as Lawrence Talbot's uh, brother. So, yeah, I think it's 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 all put together really really well, and you know when you kind of break down these universal films, uh, I think there's a lot of things to to really look for on many different layers. One that I want to point out real quick is uh, James Wells' use of the camera. So, this is something I noticed that he did in in Frankenstein, which is when we first introduced to um, Henry Frankenstein in or his portraits really it's it's really his wife and then um the people at his house we get like a close-up of his uh, portrait tell me if you remember this of like his face and then we get her a close-up of like his wife and then a close-up of like that other dude and then this exterior of the wall he kind of did that again 
with the invisible man he started with like this exterior of the pub with the people watching him then like uh kind of underneath of him and then a close-up of the face like really kind of like building up to like the mystery of what this man looks like and i gotta tell you again i'm thinking back like there's not a lot of filmmakers that are really toying around with like not having it being like a static shot at this time like filmmaking at this point is pretty rudimentary um we're not experimenting with a lot of things but he certainly is especially this film yeah we can get to the <clears throat> age ability of that but that's not where i want to take this little quick discussion mm -hmm. the the reveal of the antagonist in the universal films mm -hmm. is handled with such expertise yeah i know that bella lugosi a hundred years ish later and come here like mm -hmm. is a little silly yeah but it wasn't then and that set the standard for vampires and if you doubt that go to any halloween party and look at how many are still dressed in that rather garish gothic uh widow's peak hairline that is from 1931 yeah so oh. then let's go with well, I could even tell you now, Matt, if you had to pick one iteration of Dracula, like, who are you picking? It's him by a mile. Yeah. It's certainly not Twilight. Yeah. Okay, so then if we continue sequentially as best I can, mm -hmm. the monster. Mm -hmm. We always call him Frankenstein, but and that's the name, but it's actually the monster. So square, so rigid, fighting rigor mortis, reincarnated. The mummy. Mm -hmm. Again, let's use Karloff again. Just had a great face for terror or horror. Yeah. And then this... And this, I think, might be the most challenging mm -hmm. up to date because how do you show the reveal of that because the reveal is nothing. So you have to set it up. And then once you remove the bandages and there's nothing to look at, and then he removes the nose and we see, oh, he did have hair because it was a wig. Then there's nothing there except the clothes maybe that encapsulate the body. And so you, again, that hadn't been done. So mm -hmm. we're first timing what that looks like in film. And it speaks to this 15 to 20 year period with Universal that I'll conclude mm -hmm. with the Wolfman. Now, I think the American Werewolf in London maybe have, might've done it better. And I'll also argue Landis and Michael Jackson and Thriller created a really good looking werewolf, but it's adapted from, I was a teenage werewolf. And all influenced by this. But they all look great. Mm -hmm. And that's what people really wanted to see back then. We've talked about this a lot. The werewolf as character is ridiculous. That's mm -hmm. a terrible, stupid, linear mm -hmm. character. And once the wolfing is done, then there's not much left. But it's worth it to watch it because how do you change from wolf to man and back to wolf? And the Invisible Man has his own version of that. At some point... <laughs> The good guys have got to get the upper hand, but they can't see him. So how can we present this in a way without showing the character? Yeah. And they, they do it in spades. They do it really good. Can I say one other thing, too, you brought up? Yeah, go ahead. When I was thinking about invisibility and theme this week, one of the things that kept coming up to me was, and I kept coming to, was the use of science. Mm -hmm. And what is it actually endeavored for? And most of the time especially in horror elements, science is endeavored for hubris of the scientist. And in this film, we get the scientific piece and why they began to endeavor in that capacity. And it boils down to prior to world domination and this frenzied uh, murderous spree that the Invisible Man goes on, it's to impress the girl. Mm -hmm. 
and I hadn't considered that, but that's also kind of a consistent theme in some of Universal's horror tropes that involve science. Mm-hmm. It's done to impress the girl, and this gets to a larger hole for me, which is if you keep the motives simple that we can all relate to, then you ground something as fantastic as horror is with a common crisis, conflict, purpose that many of us endeavor for. Because I'm going to ask you a question. Mm -hmm. Have you ever tried to do something to impress a female? Of course. Of course. Like I will give you, like you shower in the morning. Mm -hmm. That's not for me. You didn't shower for me today. Mm -hmm. Well, you might have, but mostly (laughs) you didn't. Do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah. That's brilliant that you keep it simple to keep this at a base level because you're going to have something that is as outlandish as invisibility. I was so pitifully poor. I had nothing to offer you, Flora. I was just a poor, struggling chemist. I shall come back to you, Flora, very soon now. The secret of invisibility lies there in my books. I shall work in Kent's laboratory till I find the way back. There is a way back, Flora. And then I shall come to you. I shall offer my secret to the world with all its terrible power. The nations of the world will bid for it, thousands, millions. The nation that wins my secret can sweep the world with invisible armies. And he's not going to do it alone, so he's going to kind of recruit one of his old confidants, uh, Kemp, and... Really great sequence. I want you to talk about it, but this yeah whole lighting of the cigarette like sequence is pretty incredible. Maybe through Insta or something, we can put a link to that bit where they're sitting there in opposition smoking and the invisible man, Claude Rains, is giving the keys to the kingdom of what this plan might be in a very threatening way with Kemp, which essentially is, look, you're going to get me some clothes and I'm going to put them on. And then if you try to screw me, I'm going to take these clothes off Mm -hmm. and you won't be able to find me. Mm -hmm. And man, look out if that happens, Kemp. I love that. It's just... They're very close, but it's a, a man in a chair yeah. and then a chair. But there's the smoke element. It's just, it's handled so well and so fun to watch. Yeah. I don't say that often. Yeah, Like, I don't think I've said fun in this podcast sure. since we, you know, I've launched it. Mm-hmm. But it's just really fun to watch how that looks on the screen. Oh, yeah. So go, run with it. Yeah, it's a good visual image. And, you know, after that, you know, he kind of gets him this kind of the robe that you mentioned, this kind of like... Yeah, he's like Hugh Hefner, this like smoking Yeah, jacket. perfect, well said. Yes, <laughs> and, yes. Uh, then the bandages and those, yeah, those weird uh, glasses with the, the side pieces. And what I've always really liked is just kind of how he just lays it on to, to Kemp here. You're my partner, Kemp. <laughs> we'll begin with a reign of terror. A few murders here and there. Murders of great men, murders of little men. Just to show we make no distinction. I might even wreck a train or two. Just these fingers around a signalman's throat. That's all. Griffin, for heaven's sake! Do you want me to take these off? No, no. Very well, then. We'll make our plans tomorrow. Tonight we have a small job. Yeah, it's, um... This scene, for me, is always, you know, before this, I always kind of saw him as, like, really trying to find a way to improve his current situation but like here he's truly mad i mean he's talking about you know potentially assassinating he says some of the big people some of little people well big people to me seems like the president or like you know rulers of nations which he has the course to literally change like 
history at this point. So quite frightening uh, set of goals that he has. And yeah, like you said, like camp, like you're going to go about it. Or I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to strip. You won't find me. And the, he gives it to him later. He's like, he's like, I'm going to kill you camp at 10 o'clock. Like, yeah, that's, um, yeah, that, that's, that's pretty frightening. And, and the expanse of who's included in that. So it can be Archduke Franz Ferdinand, or it can be your neighbor. Mm-hmm. Can I talk about something for a couple minutes here? Go ahead. I'd like to say the overlying vehicle of all this or the larger context is death. So we're talking about horror and I'm talking about universal horror particularly now, but I think it carries forward. So all of this is encapsulated in finding an interesting way to entertain the audience about death. Cause that's kind of the crux of horror. Occasionally we get life and you could say Rosemary's baby, but mostly it has to do with death inside that theme. I think there are three distinct arcs or stories that involve horror. The first is man is God. And you get the horror from that. And so that's Frankenstein. That's pretty much any possession movie. It could even be the mummy for a certain example. Like, mm-hmm. like what happens when man harnesses or tries to harness the power of creation as omnipotent? Yeah. Okay, so there's one. The second one is man as prey by that i mean incapable of defending yourself against whatever is looking to suck your blood or in this particular case we just heard it choke you out you're just not capable of defending because you're outclassed outgunned out man that's the creature from the black lagoon as well you just you, mm-hmm. you, you, you werewolves as well you just they're yeah. faster they're stronger mm-hmm. and the third one is the larceny of man's body So in this particular scene, we see two of those three there, and that is through some sequence of events. Something has stolen the use of your body, or you've had to forfeit it through a deal, but the body, like the the tool that you have to carry out desire and, and hope and all of the things that make up the human condition, you forfeit. And that's, of course, like the exorcist, the invisible man, the wolf man, Frankenstein, Alien, all of those things kind of boil down to, in my opinion, one of those three things. Now, I know there's a few one-offs, but mostly there isn't. If you take like ghost movies, that's man as God. Like what happens when you come back from the other side and maybe it's not as rosy as you thought? In this particular sequence, I don't even know if Universal had decoded that yet, but they're hitting two of them at the same time. Like you've lost the use of your body. It's gone because mm-hmm. we start off with him trying to reclaim it. Remember and that in he's trying to get like back to a visual state. Yeah. And then secondly, when he's talking to Kemp, Kemp's totally outclassed and you're going to see it later. Mm-hmm. Cause I, I, again, first time. Yeah. I couldn't believe that they did away with Kemp the way they did in Oof. this film. Yeah. Big time. Damn. I thought he, he's going to jump out the window or something's going to come along and save this guy because no way Universal has the stones, but I should have remembered they had just shown a train wrecking after it being derailed by the Invisible Man. Yep. So who the hell is Kemp in that regard? Mm-hmm. And so in this particular sequence that you just played the audio for, it's hitting on two at the same time. And those three conditions give you really good story because you know what? We all mm-hmm. have that. We all fear for this thing has just come into my body and taken it over and I'm the vehicle to birth the Antichrist or uh, God bless Linda Blair 
or I got bit by this thing, which was faster than me and I couldn't get away. So I had no chance. And now I've had to forfeit my body because of the bite. I'm not talking about zombies. I'm talking about worlds, but it kind of applies minus the speed versus the the mass of all of them. Mm -hmm. Those three things, Jesse are such good stories. Yeah. Well, it's what made these films what they are. It's and to the lasting legacy of that. Yeah, you and I are huge fans of horror. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's changed. I could take those films out that I mentioned and put in anything in the last twenty years. Sure, yeah. from Midsummer to The Wicker Man to mm-hmm. Hereditary or anything else that we want to talk about. Yeah, and it still hides. It's still in one of those three things. So let's pick it up a little bit with the Invisible Man's Reign of Terror, which is, you know. Pretty, pretty well done, and, you know, it might be slightly comedic for gags at times, but his intention, you know, as we kind of just stated a second ago, is fairly malicious, and, you know, we kind of get this first little bit of it, you know, right away. We had to get her screaming. <laughs> That's called hysteria. But yeah, he's just making rags with this bar at this point and you know it really lets this like police captain have it and then he goes just on a, like a rampage throughout the town where he starts making the news you know nearby and in, in the in the bigger cities what was shocking to me on the rampage you just mentioned mm-hmm. is that train bit oh yeah i can't believe they did that yeah well it, he escalates too they do a good job of like yeah here's a strangling here and Here's you know, a string, just this little yeah. JV murder thing. Yeah, yeah. and then he, he drops that stool on that guy's face. I swear they really did that too. Smash that vase on that dude's mm-hmm. head, and then builds up to that, and then his his ideas and his intent just gets a little more crazier as the film goes on. So we get a montage of essentially the debauchery that the Invisible Man is engaged in, and I think the crowning moment in that montage is he sneaks into the train station. I don't know what you'd call that, the engineering station pulls a couple levers, changes the rails, yeah. and the train derails and rolls down a side of the hill to what Antonio was speaking about earlier, mm-hmm. the special effects still holding up, like watching that tumble down the side of the hill. Mm-hmm. It's not only like, wow, I can't believe that they really did that in 1933, yeah. but it looks pretty good. Yeah, pretty well done. That was my favorite bit of the whole film, was watching the evil that that guy's spreading. Yeah, and, and then, and then com- compound that with whatever authority figures there are, which is, you know, this police constable man trying to, they're trying to come up with creative ways to catch him, find someone that's invisible, whether it's, you know, spraying him with paint or, you know, putting like sawdust or, you know, crumbs like on the ledges. That way, if he's walking on them or trying to hop a wall, like they'll see that fall walking with big nets, you know, doing kind of like the arms crawl, like the red Rover. (laughs) game mm-hmm. uh trying to you know just find him in a path looking for footprints uh yeah the film's very clever about trying to how do you find a man who's invisible who could literally be anywhere at any time i think there's two pieces of invisible man or invisibility horror mm-hmm. okay so i didn't think this movie was going to scare me and it didn't because it's so old but it was it was terrifying but not scary yeah the first of those is the obvious one which is here is the evil that I can put upon people. Okay. Mm-hmm. The flip side of that, though, is if you acquire <laughs> invisibility, it only is a precursor to malevolence. Yep. 
Here's what I will tell you, Jesse. If you want to do something good, let's say some random act of kindness, okay. you can do that in the visual state that you exist right here before me. Yep. You don't need to be clandestine or hidden. Mm-hmm. If you want to volunteer here or you want to donate this or whatever quote unquote goodness you want to pursue, you can pursue that in the state that you currently are in right now, visible before me, tangible. I see you. You don't have to hide it. Invisibility speaks to the exact opposite of that. It is the prequel to only bad Mm -hmm. because the disguising or the hiding or the shucking away so you can get away with it. Yeah. Nobody needs to get away with doing something good for the world. Oh, yeah. So it's a trap insofar as here's the evil that I can put forth, but here's the evil that I can only now pursue. Like no one catches the, like, let's go basic. I want to find someone. I want to love them and put beautiful people on the earth. You cannot do that in a state of invisibility. Mm-hmm. You can put people on the earth, but that's a whole other debaucherous way to accomplish that, that you might want to consider not doing mm-hmm. visibly because that would be, or invisibly because that would be, well, rape. Yeah. So we can go on and on with those. I can't think of a single thing that is quote unquote good, yeah. whatever you want to call good, that you would need to do invisibly. Yeah. If you want to give like some $50 to someone and they have no idea that it was you, you can still do that in the visible state. You just can leave it at their front door or whatever. You don't need to be unseen to pull it off. We're going to be talking about this topic a lot next week because next week's film really delves into, into that, into that a, a lot with the, the kind of evil nature and how far are you willing to go and you are doing evil things, but you can't be seen, so you're going to kind of get away with it. So, so I don't want to get too far ahead, of, but I found myself spending a lot of time trying to wrestle with, okay, Matt, are you sure? Mm-hmm. Are you sure there's nothing that you cannot do? Mm-hmm that is good that you shouldn't be seen for. Yeah. And I'm sure with all of the thousands of people that are listening, someone will come up with something, but you're going to be, or maybe not, but mm-hmm. you're going to be, and that's not an issue. I'm not, chall- I'm not challenging Rye Nation. Mm-hmm. So I know they'll take us up on it. Yeah. And you'll get bombarded on the Insta. Yeah. But it's going to take some significant thought to mm-hmm. do that. Mm-hmm. I love that idea, man. Where can we go with that? Exactly. And in this, you're seeing it. I can't see it. So he pushes the envelope by throwing a few mugs at the people in the end yeah. and culminates in, I'm going to derail this train. Mm-hmm. And the guy that's actually working that night won't see me do it. And I'm going to get away with it. Exactly. And Yikes. then that's terrifying. Yeah. And then, you know, Kemp, you know, this kind of threat that he's given him, he's kind of poor Kemp. Yeah. He's kind of on the receiving end of this. 10 o'clock. I came with you to keep my promise. No, it's all a mistake, Griffin. I swear I never told the police. I want to help you. Let me be your partner. I've had a cold and uncomfortable journey just to keep my promise at 10 o'clock. I went into the police station with you, Kemp. I stood by while you changed into that coat. I rode on the running board of the car that took you home again. Uh, Yeah, he went through, Kemp goes through this whole kind of thing to protect himself and he wants to be locked up in a jail cell and... He finds himself in the car and he thinks he's safe. And he's just been—he's been in the car too this whole time. And yeah, he just sends it careening down this cliff and explodes a couple times on its way down. That was another gruesome kind of. Think the film was going to go there? It totally went there. I looked over at you and said, "No way!" Yeah, I can't believe 
he had to have escaped. Mm -hmm. He's going to roll out the window. Yeah. Nope. Yep. The Invisible Man wins that battle. Well, we got to th think too of the, the, the these Universal films too. Think back to the little uh, the little girl in Frankenstein. Is, oh. the, is the film going to go there? Totally went there. So Jesse, yes. Yeah. Gospel. So, go. but I think these films also were weren't afraid to you know push the taboo nature of you know of death with with some of these films, uh, whereas you know normal Hollywood and you know this is pre pre Hays Code and all that to being pre Hays Code yeah because it got a lot more say. got a lot more stringent um, going forward mm -hmm. but they were certainly able to, to kind of dabble with you know yeah, these characters and I think that makes the antagonist that more imposing I think it makes us a little more scared of Claude Rains just kind of where is he at where wh why can't we find him and I think that's all handled very well you know this is a very well directed film by James Whale yeah no question about it yeah. I, yeah you're right so we get to the final section of the film which is kind of the cornering of him in this in this barn and this farmer finds him and another thing i just really like you know we've talked about the visuals but like when he wakes up from his hay nap and we kind of see the 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 hay just get, getting strewn away and it like it like moves as if someone's there just done so effortlessly but they're gonna smoke him out of this thing and then like hopefully through some type of evidence they got him all surrounded they're gonna they're gonna end him because you know, like how do you stop this type of person i guess you get lucky because mm -hmm. that's mostly what happens here he mm -hmm. just needs to rest yeah and they get lucky mm -hmm. that I, I had to laugh these cops and they make them very keystoney. <laughs> These cops are imbeciles. Yeah, every line that the cop has is just another mm -hmm. moment of <laughs> it, what an imbecile this guy is. Yeah, they're walking around like shoulder to shoulder, holding a net. Mm -hmm. That's not going to work. Mm -hmm. Just walk around, just flank. You know, go around the outside of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> just flank it. <laughs> exactly. But that's their <clears throat> that's their premise until they kind of capture him with a contained geographic space that they can trap him in. Mm -hmm. And they set up some things that he avoids easily, which leads to the demise of Kemp that you played. Mm -hmm. But this is the guy's just tired yeah. and cold. Mm -hmm. So he's got to go in the barn. If he lays on the hay, it probably doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But he's got to cover himself up and essentially use the hay in the barn as a comforter to keep him warm. And he's so tired that he doesn't hear the farmer come in. It, that's all luck, man. Yeah, The cops just get lucky. Mm -hmm. So do you want to finish it off and talk about the demise here i'll let you run with it to the finish yeah, line yeah yeah sure yeah he he kind of escapes the 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 uh, the fire trap kind of walks in the snow gives him away this kind of snow pack and we again had it very innovative how they did that how they created these like footprints without you know showing someone walking there so very very well done yeah they did that a couple times earlier in that smoking scene when he sits in the chair you see the weight of the chair drop down very well done so they put a couple bullets at him and I believe they, you know, they punctured his lungs and ruptured some internal organs. So he's like on his dying breath, but not before he can kind of have some type of redemption or solace with, with Flora, Gloria Stewart, uh, who he kind of did all of this for her in the end. So it kind of comes full circle for his character a little bit. And at least Claude Rains gets his first appearance on screen. Five, ten seconds, maybe. Which is only a little bit, maybe more or less than Dwight Fry got, because we didn't even that was a speak shock. about Dwight Fry I being in this movie. I forgot he was in that. Yeah. Yeah. Being kind of normal. <laughs> to, 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 <laughs> call, something. to yeah. call Renfield and um, his Igor character, Fritz, yeah. uh, 
any bit normal is that yeah, that's insane. But. Just handled so well. Mm-hmm. 1933 and the technological or the ambition in the special effects department that they tackled. This movie holds up today. Mm-hmm. You could, we, well, it did. Like, I didn't say that looks ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It's as good, if not better, than any CGI bit that's been out there. Mm-hmm. It's handled so well. And the final bit when Reigns dies mm-hmm. and we see him come back to a state of visual mm-hmm. is similar in some ways to the end of Psycho, isn't it? Yep. As we get that slow dissolve into a slow dissolve and we get skeletal to mm-hmm. skin to here is the corpse of the man that you didn't see the whole film. That's a cam- uh, special effect technique that's worth its weight and patience. You know, just look at like the... Oh, wow, well said. Yeah, the, the Wolfman transformation. That was Jack Pierce going and applying a little bit of makeup, a little bit of makeup, and like Lon Chaney Jr. living had to like sit in a chair for hours. 18. Unmoving so they could do this this dissolve, this cross dissolve into to create that effect. Yeah, pretty well interesting. So before we get into our ratings, I'm going to maybe start a new thing here on Rise Smile. This is a surprise for you, Matt. Oh, no. You're always asking me a bunch of questions on the show, so I'm actually going to end with a couple questions for you. Okay. But I want to know, what was your what was the standout moment of this film for you? That train bit really bothered me. Yeah. I loved the, the visual of him coming back to the state of visual recognition. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't think that they were going to derail a train. Mm-hmm. That is a lot of deaths, man. Mm-hmm. It's it's tough to watch Kemp bite it the way he did, and I was certain that someone was going to come along at the last second and save him, but they don't give you an out. Mm-hmm. And as bad as that was, because you're watching him tumble down the hill, and a good, more really good special effects is that car explodes. Yeah. That train really tripped me out. Yeah, and if I if I remember correctly, like even in the audio, you could almost like hear people screaming too. It was that was, that was pretty bizarre. What's yours? I love the first reveal of him. So when they first come in to arrest him, and he's like, "I'll show you, I'll show you who I really am." And he throws his nose on the like he, Michael Jackson's his nose under the <laughs> table there, <Ow>. and <laughs> and he just kind of uh, undoes, and it's just yeah, it's this. There's nothing there, and it's the wig, and you know the hair and everything like that. Like I think that's a great standout moment, and it's really, you know, a lot of times in these Universal monsters, you had to wait a decent amount to get like the full reveal of like the monster and its glory. Like here we are, that's like ten minutes into the movie, and like we're we're getting it. So that's always really stuck out to me. Okay. Good. Yeah. Excellent. What about the most uh, WTF moment? That's not the train sequence. It's only because it's personal, mm-hmm. but I spent a lot of time and thought about my acknowledgement of horror and recognition, mm-hmm. partly because I wanted to have something to speak to Antonia about, mm-hmm. and I spent a lot of time and thought about this film. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe. Because I spent, I mean, significant time on like, yeah, science, man. It's every, and and then it turned into a thing for me like, yeah, and that's sort of like science all across all paradigms of science. It's so self-serving and blah, 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 to not pinpoint that the reason he had engaged in the scientific endeavor to become invisible and thus become visible was for the simple purpose of the girl Mm -hmm. was really a big moment for me Mm -hmm. like when we you played it yeah when he admits i did this to impress you it was so simple and so brilliant and i so overthought it that that was a really nice reversal for me sure so that was a big 
and I mean personally, because mm-hmm. I consider myself to be fairly knowledgeable about film, and they had me mm-hmm. in 1933. Yeah. And I've seen much more, like I've seen Inception. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Right? I've seen, I've walked out of a few films in Gus Blaisdell's class. God bless you, Gus, to that. Mm-hmm. Haven't saluted him in a while. Yeah. Cheers. Um, they got me. So that was, oh, snap. Like, the reason was the girl. Yeah. That's mine. Yours? I think I have to go, and I played the audio clip for it. I think it's his first conversation with Kemp when he kind of says, we're going to go on this reign of terror, and he kind of lays out A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, and you're just like, yikes. Like, he's mm-hmm. gone from this to this, and now he's at this stage, and this invisibility formula has driven him to this kind of state of rage, and there's no stopping him. Like, he's a very formidable antagonist who has a very clear intent to hurt people, uh, murder them, start whatever kind of conflicts he wants to. And like, literally like being in Kemp's shoes, you're like, I got to call somebody. I got to do something about this, but how are they going to stop this guy? There's no way. So yeah, those are, those are, those are my moments. Are these two questions going to be legacy going forward? I don't now? know. Maybe. maybe. Why not? Maybe we'll kind of just reflect back on the film with some standout moments for us. I like that. That stick with us. That's good. Excellent. So I think time now more than ever, let's go ahead and rate the invisible man. We have Rock Gut, Well, Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. Matt, I'll go ahead and let you go first. I think it's Single Barrel, and I mean that at the highest level of Single Barrel that it could possibly be. Mm -hmm. For me, when I give that rating, it's usually cutting-edge, revolutionary, avant-garde, the first of its kind, change the game, Blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. This is all of those things. Um, it's really good, too. So I'm torn between that and Top Shelf. But yeah. I'm going to go with Single Barrel <clears throat> in a very complimentary way. Sure, yeah. It's it's in this particular case with this film mm-hmm. and the choices that they made regarding special effects and the ambitious nature that they tried to tackle with that. Mm-hmm. Um it's as high a grade as I've given a film on this podcast, but it's not the best film we've done on this podcast. Sure, yeah. In that space, that's why I would give it single barrel mm-hmm. genius. It's not like anything else of its age. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for that, in 1933, it is, it, there's a limited selection against it, but only because no one had tried it yet. Mm-hmm. And that is, I mean, in the most complimentary way of all time. I didn't think I was going to really like this movie. Yeah. Thought it'd be really dated. And mm-hmm. I have to admit to you, I don't love, totally love the concept of invisibility because you have a, like a not visible protagonist. And you know, I don't like man versus nature. Yeah. Because nature doesn't have a face. Yeah. So blah, blah, blah. But mm-hmm. you know where I, where I sit in that spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. Top, top shelf plus, I'm sorry, single barrel plus. And if I would, a top shelf would be an insult to this film mm-hmm. in a weird way. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Excellent. I'm kind of in the same boat with you. As I kind of already mentioned on that, there's a few of the universal ones that I prefer a little bit more like bride and original Frankenstein. Right. And even, even Dracula. And yep. I, I like the Wolfman too, but I, I really do really like the invisible man just primarily because uh, of its ambition, especially for 1933 and just kind of the role that they were on, you know, you mentioned 1931, 32, 33. They were just, they were churning these films out, and they were, and they were they were turning out to be big hits. So they 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 would go right into the next one. 
But yeah, I like I like the chances that they took and the film goes there when you don't think it will. And, you know, I think Claude Rains puts in up for being bandaged up and not really hearing him live on set. I think it's a pretty great performance by him, too. He sounds very menacing as Griffin, the invisible man. So, no, it's all very interesting. And the universal stuff's been always very like you, very, very close to my heart. It's it's how I kind of really got into that was my first foray into horror. And, you know, I started with, you know, I think Frankenstein and the Wolfman were the first ones I saw. And that was just kind of like an avalanche to like, what else is, what else did they do? What else did, do they have? And I remember those VHS box sets and they had, it was always like them front and center with like something else happening in the background. And those came out in like the eighties to the nineties. And like, that's, that's how I discovered these, these characters. So it would be probably another close to 10 years before we get a sequel to this film. Again, that's post Carl Lemley, uh, Lemley's reign there at Universal, but it would still be very popular into the 40s and into the 50s. Creatures like 1954, 50, 53 around that time. So this went on for a very long time. The legacy of the Universal monsters is insurmountable with what it's done for the horror genre. So yeah, Single Barrel's a fantastic rating for this film. Yeah. Well, excellent. So let's go ahead and wrap up with a bit of a night a nightcap for us. And, you know, just thinking about the universal ones. And we're going to come back to these guys uh, sometime in the future. Like, we have to do Bride of Frankenstein. Like, that'll be such a great a chance to talk about Una O'Connor again and her screaming about the set. Right. But uh, you and I kind of came to these uh, books in a very interesting, or these films in a very interesting way by means of some books and they were these orange bound uh hardback like hardback books that kind of really detailed uh the, the the these monsters and like one was like dracula and like christopher lee bella lugosi frank langell like all of them and like these black and white photos same for frankenstein and the wolfman but like yeah the invisible man had his thing too so that's kind of how we got into this yeah do you, do you remember those well, they're probably the same books jesse mm-hmm so yeah, I remember those. Excellent. And I remember when I finally became old enough to get to that section at my elementary school's library mm-hmm. and everyone in the class ran to the Wolfman because mm-hmm. our teacher, our librarian at the time who was named Miss Raybold mm-hmm. showed like she would say, okay, here's the section. And she would do this showcase where she'd bring out a few of the books and show them to the kids. Mm-hmm. And man, the Wolfman had all of us just like, oh yeah, we got to get that. Yeah. And I think that thing was on back order. <laughs> if there's such thing at the public elementary back order lot. Yeah. For weeks, I finally got it. Yes, mm-hmm. I, I remember that. I'm sure you and I both handled the same book. That's hilarious. It was meant to be. Now, what about okay? So now thinking about that, yeah. Of through all these years being exposed to these, who's your absolute favorite of these monsters? Mine is Dracula. That character scared me so much in the concept of what vampires were that I slept with a rosary on my bedpost for the duration of my childhood and adolescence. (laughs) And I got to tell you, I didn't pray it before I went to sleep every night. I just felt like it kept me safe. Mm -hmm. It just seemed that when you were vamped, you were so vulnerable. Mm Mm-hmm. And there was no way to get away from him. He could, 
hypnotize you. He was a better version of you, faster, stronger. <sighs> but the way that Lugosi specifically, mm-hmm. a little bit later, they became a bit more carnivorous and that kind of changed the primal nature. But like the very calculated, formal, well, seductive way that the vampire in that state vamped the prey yeah. terrified me because you almost seemed glad yeah. <laughs> that it happened. And boy, what a terrible way to go. Mm-hmm. Finally, I've got the, and then it's over. Mm-hmm. They still trouble me today. Yeah. I find myself often having discussions with like, what would I do if, if that's crazy at this point, but yeah. I, that character for me, is one of the best villains ever. Maybe I can't say for sure because I'd have to think about the list a little bit. Yeah, it might be my favorite villain. Mm-hmm. It's certainly at the top. That character is the one that is my choice. The, is the my be- favorite the Bella Dracula? Yeah, I always remember that shot too. He's like in his like coffin catacombs, and like the camera like comes up very slowly to him, and his like face is like lit like very prominently, but everything else is in shadow. Like he just has that gaze that like I'm gonna like get you gaze. Yeah, that's 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 always very well done. You know, the scene kills me in that movie mm-hmm. is the scene where the nurse faints mm-hmm. and Dwight Fry crawls across the floor yeah. to get her. Yeah, that one's bad. And the other one that's really tough is when you get that one image of the bride. And she's got that baby in her hands. Mm -hmm. And then you hear the baby crying off screen and you realize like, oh my God, she's just, Mm -hmm. you just don't mess with babies. But again, like to Universal's credit, Mm -hmm. they weren't afraid to push the bounds a little bit. Let's wreck a train or vamp a baby. Yeah, exactly. I'm dying to hear yours. Oh, I got to go with the close honorable mention. You know, yeah, we talk about, we could talk about werewolves, but I like Lon Chaney Jr.'s Wolfman, Lawrence Talbot. Like there's something about that look. Uh, and the cane, you know, the, 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 the silver cane and, uh, at just how he kind of is created. Bela Lugosi is in that film too, is the gypsy, uh, in place Bela. Yeah. The same name. Bela, the gypsy. Uh, yeah, I've always really liked him and he's a, you know, very odd because I always thought all werewolves were bipedal and walked on two legs and then like a lot of other films kind of keep them on four. So it's really up to the filmmaker's discretion at that point. But I always picture like I always picture him when I think of werewolves. It's it's odd. Yep. But I got to pick another Jack Pierce makeup creation. I got to pick Frankenstein. Boris Karloff is he's the man. Like he's just iconic. Like his facial structure, his skeletal structure was just born to play these like creepy people which i don't know if that's a compliment or not but i'm sure he enjoyed the career that he had because for years he was always top billed over bella lugosi and in a lot of those films like the i just watched the raven and the black cat recently and he's doesn't even have a first name he's just karloff like that's all he needed even in a movie called the terror he gets top billing over nicholson mm-hmm. have you ever seen that film targets i think that's yeah yeah it's like this like sniper film and he's like this kind of washed up kind of act. He's kind of playing himself really. It's kind of like a Michael Keaton Birdman thing. Yeah. But yeah, he he had a great kind of run with his career just playing these really odd characters. But something about the look of Frankenstein, I mentioned it earlier that that's not like how it looks in Shelley's version, but you can picture that green flat top with the scars and the staples and the bolts like so well. And his first reveal is iconic and you kind of see it like panned up and then a close up of the face 
really well done. Uh, and then even done better. Like I'll, I'll tell you, like there's a little moment in Bride of Frankenstein where I, like it almost brings me to tears with like it's the scene with the him and the blind man in, oh, the, yeah. in the shack and just very well done. Uh, so that that one's always been a favorite. And he wasn't afraid to not to play the character multiple times because he did it those two times and then again for Son of Frankenstein with uh, Basil uh, Rathbone uh, playing the son of of Henry. So Bela Lugosi's in that movie too, but he's downgraded to Igor, the servant. Mm -hmm. So I have to pick that one. Jack Pierce is understated in all of this creation. I don't think he had a lot to do with Invisible Man, but for Frankenstein and the Wolfman and the Bride, all the makeup effects that he did, that must have been just a nightmare to sit through. They look great on screen. Look great on screen. And he created the look of how we picture these monsters. Like you said, when you go to the Halloween store to like dress up as Frankenstein, you're getting the universal version of Frankenstein. You're not getting the Shelley version of it, which is crazy. Films influence the look of that character. Yeah, man, nobody goes to a Halloween party dressed up as Twilight's vampire. No, yeah. It's Bela Lugosi, mm -hmm. this regal Eastern European formal slick back hair. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah. That's almost 100 years ago. Almost. 31. Yeah. And it's 20, so 89 years ago. We're getting there. That's staying power. Definitely. Yeah. Excellent. Well, this has been a lot of fun. This has been a great episode, you know, being able to talk with Antonia about, you know, Carl Emily's legacy and for us to be able to talk about The Invisible Man and your first time seeing it, which is really great. So... Next week, we're returning to an oldie but goodie. And man, like, let's <laughs> just call this the Paul Verhoeven podcast because he's coming up again with probably his last big American film, Hollow Man. Matt, I haven't seen Hollow Man in years. It might be 10 years. But again, obviously influenced by H.G. Wells' original novel. Uh, and, you know, featuring Kevin Bacon, Elizabeth Shue, and Josh Brolin. Like, very interesting cast there. I always remember the visuals in this film because as much as we kind of talked about the ones today for uh, this version, the ones in that one are also really well done with how they make him look and how he um, portrays himself. So I'm excited to revisit that and talk about that and talk about Paul Verhoeven. So this should be very interesting. <laughs> That's an interesting movie, too. Mm -hmm. That's going to be a fun podcast. Yeah. I can't wait to do it. Excellent. So we'll have that. And then obviously we're leading up to uh, The Invisible Man on February 28th. So, yeah, that's coming up for you. So cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. Cheers. I got to get going. I'm going to go try and find a room at an end. I hope Una O'Connor isn't there because I need to get some sleep and I don't want to hear shouting the entire night. Don't use hay as a comforter, though, man. It's itchy. Yes. Hey, fever. <laughs> all kidding aside, everybody, if you wouldn't mind hitting up Antonia's Facebook page or YouTube channel and liking it, giving her comment, just thanking her. Yeah. Uh, we hope to keep that as a mainstay going forward. So um, she took time out of her pretty busy schedule to meet with us today. So we really do want to acknowledge that. Very thankful for that. And we'll see you all next week. Everybody have a great week. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rise Smile Films. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in the know for future episodes. And be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, and leave us a comment at Productions at gmail.com. The Invisible Man is property of Universal Pictures and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, 
Cheers. I knew you would come to me, Flora. I wanted to come back to you. My darling, I failed. I meddled in things that man must leave alone. Father, come quickly. <laughs>